Hey everybody, welcome to the Calhoun Ward Living Histories Podcast. I am your host, John Phillips, a member of the Calhoun Ward. Let's dive in and learn more about our ward members. Uh, my name is Robert Holt. I was born December 3rd, 1962 in Tremont, Utah, only because that's where the hospital was. Our house was actually in a town called Thatcher, Utah, which is out west of Tremont. And I went out there just a while back, and to this day, it's still just a bend in the road and about four houses. That's about how big the town was. Uh, my dad had a little farm out there. Uh, I am the youngest of four, five. I have a sister who died before I was born in a car crash. And then another sister, then two older brothers, and I'm the youngest. So I was the spoiled baby. Uh, my dad worked at Thicol, which is now called Northrop Grumman or something like that, I think. Uh, they built rockets and rocket fuel back in the days. Nowadays, if people knew them, they build the solid rocket boosters for the space shuttle when the space shuttle used to fly. So my dad worked at Thicol. My mom was a stay-at-home mom. We had a two-bedroom house with one bathroom and a little farm. My dad raised some sheep, and he had fighting chickens. Uh, yes, fighting chickens was illegal, but he raised fighting chickens, and they had a, another friend who had a little barn out back with a fighting ring, and I remember as a kid going and watching the chicken fights and uh, great family life. I mean, I just, we always did everything together as a family. We, uh, I remember my mom, <laughs> as a child, there's only a few spotted memories because we only lived there in Thatcher till I was three, a little over three, when we moved to Texas. Uh, some of the few memories I remember. I remember letting my dad's fighting chickens out one time and one of the scrappy junk chickens basically killed one of his prize fighting chickens. So got a little trouble for that. Uh, our neighbors across the street and about 100 yards down the road had milk cows and I used to walk down to the milk, walk down there and watch them milk cows. And I used to tear my mom up because I'd have to cross the road and at three years old I just wandered off. So I remember them, they used to put me in a little harness and tie me up to the clothesline as a kid to keep me from running off. It was two bedrooms, so all of us kids, my sister, my brothers, all we all were in the same room. My mom and dad had a room. Uh, but to this day, my dad wishes he could buy that house back and live in it again. We loved that house. Uh, he used to raise sheep. He'd let my brothers ride the sheep before he would shear them. I wasn't old enough, so I just had to get to watch. Uh, and I remember irrigation day. In Utah, you didn't have sprinklers. Well, the 60s, you didn't have sprinklers. You had an irrigation ditch that ran in your front yard, and you had one day a week that you could block up the irrigation ditch and flood your yard to water it. I remember irrigation days because that's the day that we used to be able to go out and run around and play in, our, in the water because it'd get about six inches deep of water all over our front yard. And so I remember playing in there. Uh, just spot memories from that 
because like I said, about about three, three and a half, we moved to Texas. My dad got a job at NASA. And NASA was just kind of really starting out in 1967. Um, and one of the reasons he decided to take the job at NASA was he was working at Thaikal one day and there was an explosion. And the guy that was working next to him when this explosion happened, when he, my dad came back around after the explosion happened, the guy's boots were still standing there, still laced up, but the guy was gone. He just had disappeared. And so that made my dad decide, you know what, it's time for me to look for another job. Uh, he had studied electronics in the Army, and so he got a job at NASA, and we moved to Texas, packed up our Ford pickup truck with our camper and loaded everything we had and we moved to Texas uh, down around the Galveston coast area. We lived in a little town called League City. Uh, we rented a house for a little while then we got this other house down at the dead end, this dead end road and my dad started working at NASA and we grew up as kids. Uh, Tons and tons of memories. I mean, I could go on for hours about some of the things we did as kids, and uh, we were we. It was a different childhood, and it was a different time. A different time back then. We had jorts, these metal lawn darts that were you'd throw in the air and try to hit them in a loop. I mean, they were a weapon. You'd never see those in the store today. One year for Christmas, my dad bought us all BB guns. And I mean, I'm seven, eight years old. My brothers are 10 and 12, basically. And he bought us all BB guns. And we'd have BB gun wars in the backyard. The only rule was we didn't aim for the head. So we would shoot each other with BB guns. Uh, one year, my dad bought boxing gloves for us for Christmas. My brothers liked to fight. They'd fight each other. And then if they were getting along, they fought me because I was the youngest. I was the baby. Uh, so he bought boxing gloves one year. <laughs> so we beat each other up with boxing gloves. Uh, I remember one time my brothers were fighting so bad, my dad told them, go outside if you're going to fight like that. They went outside, and I don't know how long it was, half hour, 45 minutes, an hour. They were still out there locked up fighting, and they were on the ground. They weren't hitting each other. They were just locked up, holding each other, rolling around, and my dad just turned the hose on them. Said, okay, that's enough. Calm down. But I mean, that's uh, some people in today's society would think that, golly, we were very harsh. We were very crude. But I wouldn't have had it any other way. As the best childhood ever. We had so much fun. Uh, we had woods in our backyard that just went on for a mile or so, and we ran in the woods. We had snakes. Uh, probably at least. Two or three times during the summer mowing the lawn, we'd have copperheads in our yard. Um, we rode our bikes everywhere. I mean, that was back in the day I could ride my bike across town, which would be about 10 miles, and just be gone all day. And my mom never worried during the summer. As long as we were home for dinner, we were fine. So... Uh, 
did a lot of things together as a family, did everything together as a family. Went camping together, went trips together. Um, just very close. I've always loved my brothers. Didn't like them sometimes, but I always loved my brothers. I loved my sister. And to this day, they're probably some of my closest friends. And I know they will always be there to support me. I will always be there to support them. Some of the biggest memories of, of being a kid growing up uh, in Texas was uh, just the heat. It was hot. I mean, I go back now and think, how did I ever live here? But it, it wasn't bad. Um, probably the biggest, most defining memory, well, I'll rephrase it, the biggest, most defining memory of my childhood um, was in 1967. Oh, wait, yeah, 1967. We moved there in 65. So, yeah, my dad went to work NASA in 1965. It happens when you get old. 1967, uh, I was in kindergarten. My two brothers were in regular school. My sister was in regular school. And we rode our bikes to school. Even in kindergarten, I rode my bike to school. And I was in half-day kindergarten. And uh, so I was home from school already. And I can remember it to this day. I was sitting in the house, and I was watching Lost in Space. Uh not that fancy version on Netflix, the old black and white version of Lost in Space. And I heard my brothers come home from school, and I, I was engrossed in my TV show. I wasn't paying attention, but evidently something was going on with them and my mom. And uh, come to find out, this was after the fact, they had rode home their bikes on a road that they had just freshly tarred that they were getting ready to pour down asphalt on. So it was a fresh tarred road, and they rode their bikes home, and their bike tires had flung up tar on their shoes and on their bike, bikes. And uh, my mom said, y'all need to go, don't track those in the house. You can't bring those in the house. You need to go clean them shoes off before you come in the house. And the way our house was designed is out the back door was our back patio carport area, and there was a room, like a... 10 by 8 room on our back carport area that was uh, our laundry room. Had the washer and dryer in it and it had our water heater in it. And my brothers, being who they were, thought, how are we going to get this tar off our shoes? And they'd seen my dad work, uh, do work on cars and work on things and, and use gasoline to clean stuff. You know, gas will clean a lot of things. So they thought, we're going to get the gas can and put it on this rag and wipe our shoes off and get our, our shoes cleaned. So they're sitting kind of on a, this porch step going into the laundry room because you step up into the laundry room. So they're sitting there on the step with this gas can washing their shoes off, and they accidentally knocked the gas can over. And when the gas can knocked over, it leaked over to our water heater, which was a gas water heater which has a little pilot light in the bottom of it. And when the gas got to the water heater, it caught fire and whoosh, to the gas can and boom, blew up. And, you know, I was in the house watching, watching my show and we heard this explosion and 
naturally what every kid's going to do is we ran outside. My mom ran outside. We all ran outside to find out what in the world happened. And as we ran out the back door, the laundry room was on fire. So my dad kicked everybody out into the backyard. So we're all standing in the backyard. And uh, it was weird because we lived on this dead-end road and we were the next to the last house on the dead-end road, surrounded by woods. And, And immediately after this explosion came, there's like 50 people here that just came out of the woods and I don't know where they all came from, but I, I don't know. They all showed up. Me being a five-year-old kid in, and I, I'll even say it, to this day, I'm intrigued by fire. I mean, every kid on a scout troop, that's all they want to do is build fires and play in the fire. So being five years old, I was intrigued. I wanted to get a closer look. So as I walked closer to look, try to get a look in the laundry room to see what was going on, as I got probably within five feet of the door of the laundry room, because, I mean, it wasn't engulfed in flames. It was just the gas can mainly and the gas that had spilled out was what was burning. The walls weren't burning or nothing like that. No damage to the house. As I got to about five feet, uh, my dad was at that moment kicked the gas can out of the laundry room to get it out of there to keep the fire from coming. And the gas can hit me dead dead center, right in my uh, head and face and arm and everything and I after I don't remember anything after that uh, the next thing I remember is I was standing there looking at the laundry room with all these people standing around me and I'm wondering why is everybody standing around me and I looked at my arm and it was just like giant blisters and they had popped and I mean Honestly, I don't don't remember it being painful. I don't remember. I mean, I'm sure I was in shock, but I just I don't I just remember looking at it, thinking, "Hmm, wow, that's weird." So, uh, they my brother also got burned. He got second degree burns. I got third degree burns. They rushed us to Galveston. Uh, there is a Shriners Burn Institute in Galveston. And to this day, I will give money every time I see Shriners on the street. I will give them money. Because uh, just, spoiler alert, I had a, I spent 57 days in the hospital. That, that kindergarten year, I missed 57 days of school in the hospital. Uh, skin grafts and just everything they could do to try to do what they could do. Uh, every summer after that, until I was 16 years old, I spent the first two weeks of every summer in the hospital with reconstructive surgery, uh, grafts. Uh, the funny things about scars is they don't grow. They don't stretch. So as I would grow, my scar tissue would shrink, but it would, uh, like the one on my arm, it would keep my arm from going straight because it would stretch and, and make my arm go 90 degrees. So they had to go in one surgery and make an incision to relieve the pressure. Uh, so I've had first two weeks of every summer I'd spend in the Burns Institute. Never got to play Little League, never got to do any of that stuff because every time we got out of school, everybody started doing that, I'd be in the hospital. Um, and my parents n- never spent a dime. It never cost them a dime, not insurance. Not anything. Shriners paid 100% of everything. Uh, 
for that. All those surgeries, all those times in the hospital, all that stuff. Um, so does it make me bitter to know this happened? No, not at all. Because what happened <clears throat> defined who I am, made me who I am. Because those that know me, <laughs> I can be loud, I can be obnoxious, I can be boring, I can be arrogant. Uh, <laughs> uh, just imagine what I'd be if I was good looking too. <laughs> so this really made me who I am. Uh, it made me aware of other people, other people with disabilities. Other, and I'm not saying this is a disability. I'm just saying it made me aware of other people's hardships that, you know, I grew up this way. Uh, and every, I look in the mirror every day, and this is what I see, even still. Even though everybody tells me, ah, oh, I don't even notice it, oh, I don't ever see it. I do. But it keeps me reminded of who I am and the kind of person I should be. My parents, I found this out years later, I graduated high school with people that were in my kindergarten class. We never moved. We stayed in the same town. Uh, and I found this out after long after I was out of high school and long after, probably when I was married by the time I found this out. Is my dad had multiple opportunities to get promoted in his work, but it would have entailed us having to move. My parents didn't move because of me. Sacrifice. Because of me. Because they didn't want me to have to go <clears throat> to a new school. They didn't want me to have to meet new people to have to explain everything. Because I never, I mean, when I went to middle school, junior high, whatever you call it, where they take a couple of elementary schools, I never had to explain. I never had to explain what happened to me. Even in high school, I never had new people come in. I never had to explain, hey, what happened to you? I, I never had to because I had friends and I've been around these people since, I, since it happened. Everybody knew and I never had to explain it. And they didn't want me to have to go to a new school and have to explain that. So I learned sacrifice from them. The willingness to put aside something that would have been better for them, probably better for us as a family, but because they didn't want me to have to go through that. That's probably the most defining thing that happened to me as a kid was that. Um, everything else of that was just life stuff. I remember middle school, Got to ride the bus for the first time in middle school. And middle school is about seven miles away. And this is the kind of parents I also have. Now, granted, I just told you how great they were because they were willing to sacrifice for me. And they loved me. And they wanted what was best for me. In seventh or eighth grade, I got kicked off the bus. Um, it was I was fighting. So they kicked me off the bus for two weeks. So I get home and I have to tell my mom and dad, hey, I got kicked off the bus. 
And my dad said, well, how are you going to get to school now? <laughs> and, you know, I said, well, aren't y'all going to take me? Nope. So for two weeks, I walked to school. Now, going on the road is about seven miles. But going back through the woods and, and uh, following the railroad tracks, and the railroad tracks cross over the bayou a couple of times, so there's railroad trestles that go over the bayou, you could cut that down to about five miles if you go that way. And so for two weeks, I had, I had to get up extra early, and I would walk to school. And I walked home for two weeks because I got kicked off the bus. And my dad thought, you know, you got yourself into this mess. You did something stupid. You're going to have to figure out how to handle it. And so that's what we did. And again, in today's society, the defects would probably be getting called on him for making me do that. But that's just the way we grew up. I mean, that's, that's the way it was when we grew up. Um, I, I never would have ever considered it a tough life, a tough, tough punishment. That's just the way it was, and uh, still, it was great. It was a great childhood. It was great. I, I had good friends at school, good friends at home with my brothers, even though when they were beating me up, uh, we broke a couch one time. Uh, let me, I broke the couch because they picked me up and threw me against the couch. We broke a couch. We broke a fence. Again, they were running after me, chasing me, and tackling me into the fence. So, yeah, we. It, it. But I tell you what, they're my best friends today, and I, they'd be there in a heartbeat if I needed them, and they'd come to my aid if I needed them right now. I knew they would. So, it's a great childhood. I mean, I, I wouldn't don't know that I would change anything. It was great. We, we laughed. We played. We played outside. We ran around, we had built tree houses, we had forts, we rode bikes, we played ball. I mean, we, we went to the beach. I mean, this was back in the day when primary was on Wednesday during the day, during, during the summer. So we'd go to primary. And I remember my mom, we had a Volkswagen Bug, would pack me, my two brothers, my sister, and about three or four other kids from our neighborhood and go to primary every Wednesday in this Volkswagen. And then after primary, because where we went to church was about an hour away, and it was only 20 more minutes from the church to the beach. So after, after primary every Wednesday, we'd go to the beach. So it was great. We'd go play at the beach, and it was, it was just fun. We had, we had a lot of fun. Uh, moving into my teen years, um, in one regard, I almost want to treat this as like a I'm I'm being subpoenaed in front of the Senate Judiciary Committee, and I want to redact a lot of this. And if you see the written transcript of this, a lot of it will be blacked out because I had great teen years. I had a lot of fun, and maybe that was part of the problem is I had too much fun. That yeah, I just if my kids listen to this, I don't know that I need them to necessarily know what I did as a teen sometimes. But school, elementary school was great. Man, I got great grades, high marks. Middle school, uh, not so much. But by the time I got to high school, I hated school. I, I just, I, I did not like school. I, I'm, I'm not a good student. Uh, when I went to school, you basically, 
had to have two years of math, algebra and geometry. So I took algebra as a freshman. I took geometry as a sophomore. And I honestly, I don't ever remember doing homework. I, I remember, I, I don't know how I graduated. I mean, I, I got just enough grades to graduate, put it that way. D's, some C's. I remember the first F I ever brought home. Whew, well, that was exciting. Um, I flunked geometry in my sophomore year. So I had to take summer school. Now, summer school was not at our local high school, but at the neighboring high school, which was, I don't know, five miles away. And again, back to the wonderful wisdom of my dad, you're going to summer school. Okay, well, is somebody going to take me? Nope. <laughs> so for two weeks, I walked to summer school every day. And I should, not every day, after I got there and I met a couple of people in the class that had their driver's license already, I was able to get a ride after about four or five days. Um, funny thing about summer school, I passed with a C and I never opened a book. I think the teachers were just, I was there every day, I was on time and I was there every day and I didn't give them any trouble. I just sat in the chair and quietly for my four hours till the class was over and then we left. And I think they gave me a C just for showing up every day because I never opened a book and I didn't do anything. Um, but hey, I'm, I did my two years worth of math. Uh, I was, uh, my freshman year, I was in the band. I did my one year stint of that. It was like a prison term. Then I got out. I was not a band person. I did that because my mom and dad wanted me to. My brothers were all in the band, but I was not a band person. Uh, I was also in FFA, Future Formers of America. I loved that. I, I loved that class. Uh, I showed pigs at the state fair. I raised bees. Uh, back in my day, if you were in FFA, you were one of the kickers. That's what we called them, the kickers. And there was kickers, there was the jocks, and there was the stoners. And there was, you know, the groups. But by my sophomore year, honestly, my high school year, my four years of high school, I could probably count on one hand and even chop two of those fingers off. Maybe three people that I would consider my good friends in high school. It's probably three people. I got along with everybody from the jocks to the kickers to the stoners. Uh, the preppies, I didn't really deal with much. The smart, smart kids, I didn't have anything to do with them. Which is really kind of funny because now on Facebook, I'm friends with all of them and I'm not friends with any of the other people. <laughs> um, but I got along with everybody. I could go to anybody's group at lunch. You know, everybody had their own staked out territory. But at lunch, I could go to any one of the groups and, and fit in and talk and joke around and have a good time with, with them all. And, and so I had plenty of associates, I would guess you would say. Was I social? Oh, yeah. My mom worked at the high school. So people knew me mainly because my mom worked there, but people also knew me because I, I got around to everybody. I joked around with everybody. By my junior year, I only went to high school till I was till 11 o'clock. And then from 11 o'clock, I went home. And at 1 o'clock, I went to a junior college for a four-hour automotive class. And I took an automotive class for that my junior year. And then my senior year, 
I only went to work to school till 11 and I got out for half a day to work release. So then I would go to work. I worked at a warehouse from one to six. And let me tell you, a 17 year old kid from one to six making $10 an hour in 1980 and you worked Monday through Friday, I was styling because I had money, I had gas, I had a car and I didn't have to work the weekends when all my buddies had to work. So it, I thought I was great. <laughs> I thought I was styling. Um, but I graduated. I, I really don't know how, but I graduated. But uh, there was a lot of fun times in high school. There was a lot of times that weren't so fun. My sophomore year, I had Saturday detention six Saturdays in a row. <laughs> and let me tell you, our Saturday detention was not the breakfast club. <laughs> it was not, uh, hey, all, kumbaya, let's hug together at the end of the day. It was like you go there, you sat there for your four hours, and you did your time, and then you got out. And once again, I had to walk. My dad wouldn't, I, they wouldn't give me a ride. You got yourself into this mess, you're getting yourself out of it. But yeah, six Saturdays in a row, I had detention for multiple reasons. Uh, again, fighting, uh, skipping class, just talking back to teachers, different things. I was, I was a jerk as a kid. I was a turd. I was not a good teenager. Uh, I was not good. I was not a good kid for my parents. I would, you know, I put them through a lot of garbage that they didn't need to be put through just because of life choices. And I thought I knew everything, which <laughs> I really realized later in life, I didn't know a thing. I was just an idiot kid, but I survived. I got out, I survived and uh, we made it. I mean, I look back, there was a lot of fun times, but there, it's a lot of times that Sometimes I didn't necessarily want to talk about it, relive, <laughs> because that, that was a different me. That was a different person, and, and I, I hope that I'm not that person anymore. Family relationships, uh, the biggest one is the way that my mom and my dad got along. Um, I don't know that I ever saw them fight. I know they had disagreements, but I never saw them fight. But the way that my dad would treat my mom uh, really taught me a lot. And see the way my mom treated my dad and treated us as kids. Um, my mom, when she had the car wreck before I was born, when my older sister was killed, she had a lot of stuff go on with her internals internally and it manifested itself years years later um, 30 years 25 oh man it's hard to tell time now when I get this old um, I was married and my mom got sick and it all kind of went back to that accident she had had 30 years earlier. And anyway, the doctor that they had, he just kept, he didn't know what he was doing. And before they knew it, she, they, he had messed up her insides so bad. So for about two years, she was in and out of the hospital. And in a two year period, she probably spent 18 months of that in the hospital. 
in and out, in and out. And my dad would go to the hospital every single day that she was there. And he would stay there till 10 o'clock at night. Then he'd come home. Uh, and I mean, we were all grown. The kids were all grown and, and out of the house and married. Um, he'd get up, get dressed, go to work, leave work, go to the hospital. And to see how he took care of her and did everything he could for her, again, showed me what it meant to be a loving husband and a good father. And then she finally passed away. And then it was very interesting to see my dad start to date again. Because my dad's not good on his own. <laughs> he doesn't know how to take care of himself. He'd never written a check or paid a bill in his entire life. My mom did everything. And when she passed away, he had to start doing all that. Um, so it was fun to see him start dating again. Because then it wasn't the kids bringing their dates home to meet mom and dad. It was dad bringing dates home to meet the kids and say, what do you think of her? Hey, what about her? And it was interesting. And that's a whole other story about him courting the girl that he finally married, my stepmom, who they've now been married 25 years. And she is wonderful. She has been wonderful for him. But to see my mom and dad's relationship taught me what it means to be a good married relationship. You might have your differences, but you've got to be one when it comes to your children, when it comes to the gospel, when it comes to everything you need to be as one, which is what the Savior always teaches us, to be as one. Um, my relationships with my brother and sister, like I said, tumultuous at times, but I knew they would always be there. Uh, there was a time when uh, I was driving from California to back to Rexburg, this is into the college years, that I got three tickets in a day. <laughs> I got a speeding ticket in California, I got a speeding ticket in Nevada, and then I got a speeding ticket in Utah. And uh, I didn't have the money, and I didn't want to call mom and dad and tell them. Um, so I called my brother. And I told him what was going on, and, and all he said was, how much do you need? And I told him, and he gave me the money to pay my speeding tickets. And, I mean, that's what it means to be a brother. You, you, you do whatever you can. You do what it takes to take care of your family and to, to be there for one another. So, very tight-knit. I mean, to this day, my sister, we talk at least once a week. My brother, at least two times a month. My other brother, we don't talk that much, but he's a mission president down in South America right now. <laughs> um, my dad, we talk once a week. He calls me once a week to see how things are going still. And so very, very tight-knit, very loving, tight-knit family. After high school, um, this was back when you were had to be 19 to serve a mission. So after high school, I just went to work and was working my dad was the bishop. That's another thing about growing up. Uh, my dad, the old time I was a kid, was either a counselor in the bishopric or a bishop, it seems like, always. So at this time, my dad was the bishop. Uh, we were in our like third ward, never having moved, but in our third ward because of boundary changes and people moving in and wards getting bigger. So I'm very accustomed to new wards, going to new wards. Uh, 
anyway, I was working. I think I was roofing houses at the time. And uh, my dad, being the bishop, I was getting ready to turn 19. And he called me in and he said, okay, you're about to be 19. Are you going to be going on a mission? And I was raised in a house where it was never a question of, hey, do you want to go on a mission? I was raised in a house is, okay, well, when you when you turn 19, you're going to go on a mission. Okay, it was just expected. Uh, I mean, this was the same house you grew up in. You, I never questioned going to church. I never questioned, well, I don't feel like going to church today. That, those thoughts never entered my mind. If we didn't go to church, we had to be thrown up or have a fever. We went to church. There was just no question. We had a free agency. We could go willingly or unwillingly. But we just always, so when you turn 19, you go to church, you go on a mission. Well, for some reason in my dumb logic, being a turd again, I didn't even think about that because I was not living a lifestyle conducive with being a missionary at the time. So my dad called me in to say, it's 19, what about a mission? And I had to sit there and look my dad and also my bishop in the face and say, I can't, I can't go on a mission right now. Well, why not? <laughs> well, I'm not spiritually ready. I'm not temporally ready. I'm not in my life status right now ready. So we worked for six months to get my act together <laughs> and uh, get myself on the right path and get my act together. And I went on a mission to the Oakland, California mission. And I was one of those missionaries that served an 18 month mission. And, uh, you know, I grew up in a, I, when I went to high school, there was me and maybe one or two other kids that were members of our church at our high school. Um, so I didn't think I led a sheltered life when it came to the gospel. Um, but I remember being out on my mission, the first two or three months of my mission, in California and getting uh, hit up with anti-Mormon literature. I didn't, I didn't know such a thing existed. I didn't, I had no idea. I was, I mean, we got hit with it that first day and we got back to the apartment. And I looked at my companion and I said, what in the world is that? Oh man, there's all kinds of books and there's all kinds of stuff out there. And, and I was, I was, I was shocked. I had no idea. And uh, so I thought, man, I thought I, I was a pretty worldly guy. I thought I'd seen some things, but that shocked me. I didn't. I didn't know that stuff existed. Um, so it was really stupid of me. But for a, for a time, I got a couple of the books and I read them, and I thought, well, I need, I'm going to read these. And then my mission president said, "You got enough stuff to study. Don't don't worry about that junk. That's garbage." And he was right. It was just garbage. Uh, it was one of the things that helped strengthen my testimony, actually. It didn't, it didn't have the effect that the people that wrote the books wanted it to have. It basically strengthened my testimony. Uh, I had some great missionary companions who were a lot smarter than me that would help me answer questions and help me figure things out and, and make the right choices. Um, my mission was great. I, I loved my mission. I met some great people on my mission. I did a lot of stupid things on my mission, things I'm not proud of, but uh, it, it was a great time. Probably the best story I can tell you from my mission 
we were tracting one day. My companion and I were tracting. And we knocked on a guy's door. And he opened up the door. And you could just... <laughs> it was almost like the Cheech and Chong movie when they roll down the window and all the smoke from all the stuff comes out the car window. And he opened up the door and this cloud of smoke comes out. And we're like, okay, I know what he's been doing. I've smelled that before. And he had long hair and a beard. And his Harley was parked in his living room, which I thought was weird. I don't, I guess he drove it in and out the front door. But uh, we asked him, hey, you know, we're missionaries, Church of Jesus Christ. We have a message about uh, the restored gospel and Joseph Smith, because back then we started with Joseph Smith, that we'd love to share with you sometime. And, and he said, well, no, today's not a good day. Come back. And we, we set an appointment for like a week later. And as we were walking down the door, the driveway, my companion and I looked at each other and said, we're going to come back next week, and he's not even going to remember that we were here. <laughs> he's going to say, who are y'all? Because he was so glassy-eyed and stoned out of it. He, we're like, he ain't going to remember. But we went back the next week because we had an appointment, and boy, appointments were hard to come by. So we went back the next week, and uh, make a long story short, about two months later, he had a haircut, shaved his beard, and he bought a blue suit. I remember he bought a blue suit and a tie and a white shirt, and we baptized him. And to see the change from where he was to where he was now was amazing. And the neat thing about it is it was years later. Uh, I mean, I was married and had two kids living in League City again. And I get a phone call, and it's him. He said, hey, Elder Holt. And I'm like, okay, who's this? You know, I didn't know who it was. And he told me who it was. He said, it's Mark. Mark Gantz. And I said, really? He goes, yeah, I'm in Houston for some business. I'd love to come see you. And he came down to our house. We were living in a trailer at the time. And he came down to our house, knocked on the door, and still strong in the gospel. It's just reminds me of the scriptures when the sons of Messiah came back together after their missions and they were just so happy because they were still so strong in the gospel. To see him years later still active, still going to the church, still gone, had gone to the temple. Uh, to just see him where he was from where he began. I will never judge anybody i mean it's not my right to judge but i mean i'll never look at somebody and say oh they'll never they'll never accept the gospel it's our job to offer the gospel it's their job whether they accept it or not and he accepted it and he changed and it was just it was probably the neatest neatest thing from my mission to see that happen so my mission was great i came home and decided after I was home for a while, I thought, okay, well, I'm, I, you know, let's do the normal thing. I'm going to go up to Rick's. Back then it was Rick's. It wasn't BYU. It was Rick's. So I said, okay, I'm going to go to Rick's. So I enrolled, and I went up there, me and a buddy that I had who had joined the church while I was on my mission. I got back, and, and he was basically the same age as me, and we started hanging out together, going to single adults and our young single adult stuff. And I said, I'm going to go to college, up to school. And he goes, all right, man, I'm going to go too. So we went up there together. We lived in the dorms, and uh, I hated school. 
<laughs> I thought, you know what? I've been on a mission. I've, I've matured. I've grown up. But I got up there, and about two months into it, I realized, God, I hate school. Um, so I didn't, I didn't do anything. I went to a couple of classes, and then I just, I was just kind of there, going through the motions. Um, didn't, didn't really. I was just there to have fun, meet people, go dancing. Love to go. The, they had two little dance clubs in town. Love to go dancing. Uh, meet people just I don't know just I was there for that I wasn't there to get an education um, then the semester got over and my buddy went home because he was actually going home thinking about going on a mission so he went back home um, just a side note on him he went home and his parents said if you go on a mission we're kicking you out of the house because he was the only member in his family his parents hated me because I was a member of the church too. But they said, well, if you go on a mission, we're kicking you out of the house. So they, he, he moved in with my mom and dad for a while. And he worked offshore, two weeks on, two weeks off, offshore on an oil rig. And there was a hurricane coming in, and he didn't make one of the helicopters, so he had to take one of the boats in, and their boat capsized, and he drowned. And we were not allowed to go to his funeral. So after his funeral was over and everybody had left, my dad went over there and dedicated the grave for him uh, just because they were so bitter towards us because of the church but anyway he went home and uh, again I was back to being kind of a turd again and, and not being aware of the damage I was doing within my own family I didn't want to go home so I went to New Mexico I had a friend I met at college he said hey man come to Mexico I can get you a job. So I went to New Mexico and got a job. I worked at a restaurant. I, uh, I cooked the appetizers. So that's where I learned about Rocky Mountain oysters. I cooked them. I made nachos. I did Rocky Mountain oysters. I did shrimp cocktails. I did omelets. And so I was a appetizer cook. And it was great. I mean, I enjoyed it. I loved that kind of stuff. I loved doing that. Uh, but that began kind of my wandering years. I, didn't have a lot of contact with my family. Didn't really let them know where I was at or what I was doing, <laughs> which in hindsight is very selfish on my part. I don't, I don't know how many sleepless nights I put my parents through wondering where I was at or what I was doing. Uh, but I worked there for about a month and a half, two months, saved up enough money to say, okay, I'm moving on. So I left there and I went to California. Uh, the fam One of the families I knew from my mission said, yeah, yeah, we've got a room in our basement. We'll let you. So I moved into their basement, and I worked security out in California as a security guard. And I was doing this to save up money to go back to school. So I'm finally, that's where I got the three tickets, was going back to school. Uh, I went back to Rexburg, had an apartment, didn't register for any classes. <laughs> I didn't go back there to go back to school. I went back there to have fun. And I got a job. I worked well. I, I was there hanging out for the longest time, just hanging out, doing nothing, getting in trouble, basically. Uh, my money ran out, so I got a job at the potato processing plant on the north side of town. The people that know Rexburg, there's a processing plant that processes the potatoes for the farmers on the north side of town. So I got a job there unloading the potato trucks. So I got to drive this big piece of equipment with a big conveyor belt that unloaded the potatoes and stacked them in those 
half underground domes. And I made enough money in two weeks to live for about six months. It was big, good money back then. But again, I wasn't going to school. I was just really doing nothing, nothing productive. And, uh, but I was living in student housing. And so when you're living in student housing, even though you're not in school, you got to live by the school standards and the school rules and everything else. And I found that out the hard way because I was asked to leave. <laughs> so basically got kicked out of Rick's and I came home and, uh, probably one of the lowest points of my life was when that happened. And you know, the, the neat thing about it was <laughs> in my patriarchal blessing, it says, no matter whatever happens in my life, no matter whatever I do or how low I sink, I can always go home and my parents will always be there with loving arms to welcome me home. And so at that point in my life, after putting my parents through six months, seven months of them not even knowing where I was at or what I was doing or if I was even alive, I called them and I said, I'm, I'm ready to come home. And they said, okay, we're here, we're here waiting for you. And I got home and no judgment, no penalties, no condemnation, no anything. They were just, they were glad to have me home. So I came home and started working again, getting a job. I went to junior college there in town. <laughs> I probably started junior college four different times and never made it past a month because I'd end up just quitting. I, I just could not, couldn't do school. I don't know why. I mean, I could do it now, but I just, back then I just, I couldn't do it. I mean, I, I don't know why I just couldn't do school. So I, I started probably four times, quit four times, just working again, doing nothing, just really working. And, uh, My hobbies, things I liked to do back then, I loved cars. I always loved cars. Still love cars. If it's got grease and nuts and bolts on it, I can take it apart and I can put it back together. If it's wood and nails, <laughs> if it takes three pieces of wood, I get seven because I'm going to go miscut or misline something. Although I love doing woodworking now, but I'm terrible at it. I just... I got to get twice as much wood as it says the project takes because I know I'm going to mess something up, but I enjoy doing it now. It's very relaxing for me. But as a growing up and mainly I, I was into cars, uh, one summer with the, one of the benefits of having my mom work at the high school is we had an automotive shop at the high school. The thing I hated about it is the only way you could get into the automotive class at high school was you had to be borderline dropout. You had to be one of the questionable kids that if you didn't put them in this class, they wouldn't graduate. Well, I wasn't in that borderline area, so I never got in the class, which kind of ticked me off. But one summer, me and my buddy, I had a 65 Mustang and he had a 67 Mustang and my mom got, got us the keys to the automotive shop and we spent the summer painting our cars. The biggest thing I learned from that is I don't ever want to paint another car in my life. I hate body work. The engine, the transmission, the suspension, Trim work, you know, the nuts and bolts I can do, but boy, I do not like sanding and blocking and bondoing cars and spraying paint. That was not my thing. I realized that. But I've always been in the cars, still in the cars. I have a 65 Mustang right now in pieces. 
that I've hauled around with me for 35 years because I started it before we got married and then we got married and had kids and that took second fiddle. Someday I might put it together. Someday I might pass it on one of my kids. But I love cars. I've always loved, we've always loved the outdoors. We've always camped. And our camping was tent camping. When we went on trips, I didn't know what a hotel was. I mean, we stayed in a hotel. Something was going on because we never even stayed in hotels. Not even a Motel 6. We stayed in a tent. We didn't even have an RV. It was tent camping for us. But we did it and we loved it. And uh, hunting, fishing, that's the biggest thing my wife and I did when we first got married was fish because it was free. I had a cast net. We'd go down and to the bayou and I'd cast the net in and get about a, a live bucket well full of shrimp. And then we would go, had a little spot by the house. We could go and just fish. And we just had more fun doing that because it didn't cost us nothing. Wasn't because we were poor. It's because we were stupid with our money. <laughs> but uh, we just, we enjoyed fishing. Even after our first kid was born, we, we, we'd put her in a stroller or a jumping gym thingy majigger and we'd go fishing. We love to fish. And so I've always loved the outdoors. I would always rather be outdoors than indoors. Never played video games. Never, well, video games didn't really exist back in my day. It was arcade games. I played those, but not Xbox or none of that stuff didn't exist. I mean, I was in high school when we got cable TV. I remember coming home from high school by junior year, and we had a box on top of the TV. <laughs> and it was cable TV and didn't know what it was. TBS and MV, MTV is what I watched. <laughs> and that was back when MTV played videos, back when it was good. Um, but yeah, I mean, I got home off a mission, got, went to school and, and got home from school after I had been asked to leave. And I was just, I was stagnant. I was just working. I was going to school. I mean, I wasn't going to school, just, just working, not really doing anything. I had a very good friend who I'd known since I was like 11 years old. We grew up together through scouts and church and missions and, and everything else. And uh, after his mission, he went into the Air Force. And uh, I was very good friends with his family. Uh, I mean, good enough friends that we would have Thanksgiving at our house, and then I'd go to his house in the afternoon and have a second Thanksgiving. We'd go to Christmas at my house, and then in the afternoon I'd go to his house and do Christmas all over again. And I mean, we, we were at each other's house a lot. Um, but anyway, he had gone into the Air Force and he was stationed in Las Vegas at Travis Air Force Base. And uh, he had met a girl and married her. And he was home for Thanksgiving uh, one year, 19, 1986, I think it was, because we got married in 87. If that's wrong, I'm sure my wife probably corrected it. And I don't know how what how what version she's going to tell. Maybe it's from her perspective. And I don't know how much detail she was going to tell you. <laughs> but I'll tell you. Um, they came home for Thanksgiving. My friend did. His name's Sam. And his wife's name was Tammy. And he, I was over at their house on Thanksgiving, and we were all just sitting around the table eating and talking and asking about the Air Force and this and that and everything else. And, and he started, man, Robert, you just, you need to come out to Vegas. You need to come out to Las Vegas. And I, was, I 
I said, man, I don't want to go to, I don't care nothing about Las Vegas. I don't gamble. Uh, I don't have no desire to go to Las Vegas. There's nothing out there for me. Well, just come out and see us. Come out and visit us. And I had heard them talk that she, his wife, Tammy, had a little sister. Uh, don't judge me. But at this time I was 23. And she was 15. And uh, me being the person that I was, and I don't know what my wife will tell you about me. Uh, she thinks I kissed every girl in League City, but I didn't. I, I did I flirted a lot. Maybe that's just the way I was. I flirted a lot. I, I didn't mean nothing by it. It's just that's the way I was. So I told him, I said, okay, if I come out, uh, I'll come out if your little sister will go out with me. So that way when we go to dinner, it's the four of us and not just you two and me and I'm not like a third wheel. So if she'll go out with me, I'll come out and visit you. And I honestly... I didn't think nothing of it. I thought, okay, after they left and they, they went back to Vegas, I didn't. I honestly didn't think anything of it. I didn't, didn't expect anything to come of it. <laughs> I was just being me. <laughs> well, I got a letter in the mail. And I, I remember the first part of the letter said, so I hear you want to go out with me. <laughs> so that's how that started. So we started writing back and forth. And uh, this was before email. This was before internet. This was before beepers, cell phones, all kinds of stuff. So I, we wrote back and forth quite regularly. I wrote a lot of letters. Sent her a lot of goofy stuff. I wrote a letter on a piece of paper and put it in a bottle once as a message. I did all kinds of weird things. But anyway, we started writing back and forth. And then we started talking on the phone. And honestly, that was... That was always a thing I liked to do when I would try to, if there was a girl that I that I liked, was talk to her on the phone or get to know her without her ever seeing me first. Because I thought, man, if I can get her hooked into my personality and she likes me, she's not really going to worry that I have scars and, and I, I don't look like a normal person. So I thought, this is working right in my plan. So we started talking on the phone. And we would talk for hours. And this was back when you had to call after 9 o'clock to get the cheap rates. And it was still a two to $300 phone bill every month for my mom and dad that I had to pay. <laughs> uh, when all this was going on, I was working at a car dealership in the service department. I worked as a service advisor and made real good money. I mean, usually over $3,000 a month because I worked on commission. And so... We, it was very good. And so uh, I'd talk on the, we'd talk on the phone for hours. Just about every night we were talking and we were interacting and uh, really getting to know each other before we ever even saw each other. So I figured it was time for me to go to meet her. And back in those days, you could fly out of Houston Hobby Airport to Vegas Six o'clock Friday night, and then you fly back six o'clock Monday morning. They called it the Gambler's Red Eye, and you could do it for $99 round trip. So I would get the Gambler's Red Eye, and after work on Friday, I'd go to the airport, and I'd fly to Vegas. And uh, I remember the first time I went, 
I purposely sat on the plane till everybody else had got off the plane because I wanted to be the last person to walk off the plane because I knew she'd be out there waiting. And uh, I walked off the plane, and there she was with her Farrah Fawcett hair <laughs> and these white go-go-looking boots with tassels on the side. <laughs> and I just thought, wow, she's beautiful. Man, I got lucky on this one. <laughs> and just thought she was the cutest thing ever. And uh, spent the weekend out there with my buddy and uh, found out that I kind of liked to gamble. <laughs> um, I would go out there and I would say, okay, I, I'm, we're going to do this and this. We're going to go here. And I have $100. And I'm going to go play these gambling machines. And when the $100 is gone, I'm done. You know, and I, I never looked at it as, ooh, I'm going to win $1,000. I looked at it as just as like playing a video game. Okay, I'm going to play this thing. It's just put money in, ding, ding, there goes that money. But, you know, I never, I wasn't doing it to win money. I was just doing it for fun because it was fun to do. But uh, I flew out there, I don't know, two, three, four times maybe. Uh, I flew out there for her junior prom <laughs> at school and took her to her junior prom. Uh, flew her to Texas a couple of times, and she came to Texas and she stayed at our house with us and met my parents. And, uh, we just uh, we just really hit it off. I mean, we we were perfect for each other, and uh, we got married in August <laughs> the following year, August twentieth, nineteen eighty seven. She was sixteen and I was twenty four. And there was a lot of people that were very judgmental about that. <laughs> they had a lot of issues to say about that. Even my bishop, when I went in for the interview to get get, get married, because we did get married in the temple, uh, was like, you know, uh, I'm not advising you against it. I'm just letting you know these are some of the things that you're going to have to worry about and look forward to. And my parents never said a word about it. You know, they just said, are you sure this is the thing you want to do? Are you sure this is the right thing you want to do? And I said, yeah. I prayed about it and everything else, and this is what I want to do. Her her mom was great about it. Her dad, they were divorced, but they were great about it. Her mom had to go with us to get the wedding license because she had to sign because she was only 16. Um, and again, my tardiness as a kid would would still come forth every once in a while as an adult. Because uh, four and five years after we were married, 10 years after we were married, I would still get up in church on our fast and testimony meeting in August and say, okay, hey, yeah, me and my wife just celebrated our 10-year anniversary to all those people that said we weren't going to make it. <laughs> so, you know, it's not kind of thing you really want to do in testimony meeting, but my ignorance and my... There was a lot of people that were against us. A lot of people that said it wasn't going to work. And here it is, 37, I know I'm going to get in trouble for this, 37, 38 years later, we are still married, and we are happier than ever. Uh, we got married in the Logan Temple, so I went out there, I drove out to Las Vegas with a buddy of mine, another buddy of mine, he rode along just so I wouldn't have to drive by myself. We rode out to Vegas and uh, picked her up, and then drove to Logan and dropped my buddy off at some of his family's house. Then all of her family came up and uh, we got married in the Logan Temple.
for time and all eternity. Best thing we ever did. And uh, it's funny because we just went back to Utah about a month ago. And we went to eat at this Sizzler steakhouse that my dad likes to go eat at. And we were sitting there and Saki said, this is where we had our our lunch after the wedding ceremony. <laughs> and it was. It was the same restaurant that we had, went and had our lunch. The, all the people that went to the temple with us all went there for a big lunch that my mom and dad put on for everybody. <laughs> and it was the same restaurant. Now, well, this is kind of weird. Yeah, 30-something years later. And uh, But, yeah, she was uh, going into her senior year of high school. When we got back to Texas, uh, she was going into her senior year of high school. And it was funny because my mom still worked at the high school. And uh, if there were days that she didn't go, to, my wife didn't go to school, Saki didn't go to school, she'd write her own notes. I didn't feel good. <laughs> but she was a very good student. She wasn't like me at all. She made who's who in American high school students. She was straight A's. Um, and she did all of that having a baby her senior year of high school. And uh, it's just amazing. She's an amazing woman. Best thing that ever happened to me. She is definitely the smart one in our relationship. Uh, very smart. For what, I mean, I tried to help her study for her school stuff, and I couldn't even read the questions let alone answer them. So she's very smart. But yeah, she graduated high school on the honor roll. Super smart. Uh, we went to the senior prom. I didn't even go to my own senior prom. I didn't care nothing about that when I was in school. But we went to the senior prom and we left about 10 o'clock because we had to get home so the babysitter could go home. <laughs> and uh, at this time, I was still working at the car dealership and uh, making good money, but we were just stupid. I mean, we'd make, I'd bring home a check that was just outrageous money, and we'd go to the mall and just go crazy. And then come Monday, you'd think, oh, we got to buy groceries still. <laughs> so we were not very smart with our money. Um, I will tell you this, we've never gone hungry. We might have not been eating what we wanted to eat, we lived a month on ramen noodles. We ate a lot of macaroni and cheese, but we never went hungry. And uh, it was it was dynamics of learning how she was raised in the gospel and how I was raised in the gospel. My family generations go back to the beginning of the church. I have family on both sides, mom and dad, that go back to the beginning. I mean, one of my fourth great-grandfathers was in the first presiding bishopric. And I had family that came across on hand carts and families that came across on wagons and families that were there in Nauvoo. We had land in Nauvoo. So my family is very deep in the church, born and raised as far back as I, it goes. She had some lines of her family that go back that far, but I don't know. I think she would always consider herself an active member of the church. It's just they didn't always go to church all the time. Whereas, you know, we went to church all the time no matter what. So, you know, we had some dynamics working out there coming up, but it was nothing that we didn't work through. Then uh, I got tired of working that car dealership. Car dealerships are just so unstable. This dealership closed. And so, you know, you're just out of work. And so I applied at an Exxon plant 
that made an oil refinery plant. And I'd applied for this company called Valtech, which makes process equipment for the oil and petrochemical companies. And it wasn't a, a career that I chose. <laughs> it was a career out of necessity. But I got the job at Valtech, which is now called FlowServe. And uh, I worked on process equipment, valves and control valves and meters that are in chemical plants and oil refineries and things like that. Um, rebuilding them and overhauling them. Again, nuts and bolts. I loved taking something that was covered in grime and rust and dirt and making it look brand new again. And I was very good at it. Uh, so I, we lived there in League City. And I did that for five years. And there was a couple of years there where I... There was one summer for four months I never saw her. I was up going to work before she was awake, and I was not getting home till midnight or later. And there were some days that I was gone 36 to 40 hours straight. Just in the oil field business, if something's going on, if a piece of equipment is down, it could cost them $100,000 an hour. So they don't care if you're not sleeping. They want their piece of equipment fixed. So there were days that we worked 36 hours straight. Just, I mean, I, I, I would have 90, 100, 105 hours on a paycheck in a week. Not two weeks, but in a week. And for four months, that's the way, I mean, we worked like that. And she just said, something's got to give. I mean, and I said, I can quit or we can just suck it up and it will get better. And we sucked it up and it got better because I did that for about five years. And then I got the chance to move to one of our offices in Corpus Christi, Texas, as an inside, in, I worked in the office as an in, what they called an inside salesman over for other repairs. But I'd also would go out after my regular at four o'clock or during the day if they needed it, go out and still help them work on the equipment. And if I needed to go out to the field as a field service tech, I still did that. So we moved to Corpus and uh, I did that for about four and a half more years with that company. And uh, then again, me being me and being stupid and not very smart, uh, I was let go. They fired me. Uh, so here I am, married, three kids, have a house, and don't have a job. <laughs> and uh, so again, that's what proposed us to move to Georgia is I had two job offers, one here in Georgia and one in Oregon, working for companies that do basically what I was doing already, but different companies, process equipment, working on process equipment. And uh, I came out here to Georgia and interviewed, and they offered me the job. And uh, I came to church, and it was the Cartersville Ward. And they basically had just become a ward back then. And it was Bishop Sidlow. And he's, he met me that first Sunday, and I introduced myself, and he, he said, how many kids you got? And I said, I got five kids. And he goes, oh, man, you'll double the size of our primary. And uh, I went back to the hotel, and I told called Saki, and I just said, this is the job. This is where we need to be. This is where I feel we need to be. And the Lord, I truly believe the Lord guided us here, and we are here for a reason. We're here where we, we were supposed to be. So, again, Job didn't choose me. 
I mean, I didn't choose the job. The job chose me. Um, honestly, if I look back on my life and I had to do it all over again, if I was to choose a job, I'd probably be a history teacher because I love history. Church history, world history, American history, Texas history. I, just, I like history. So I'd, I'd probably be a history teacher if I was doing it all over again. But that's not the way it works. So that's how we ended up in Georgia. And, uh, I worked for this company for a couple of years. Then they sold off that part of their business. And uh, so we went where the, where the company sold us, and I didn't like that. I, just, I, I felt like I didn't have a say in it. I was just forced to go work for this guy. And uh, I did not like working for that guy. He wasn't ethical. He wasn't... Anyway, he's since passed away, so I don't want to say too much bad about him. Uh, but anyway, I didn't like working there. So about... After about three years of doing that, I got this job, or I went to a job fair for Enforcer slash Zep, and I applied, and I got a job there working in their manufacturing facility. I ran some of their manufacturing lines where they make uh, cleaners and insecticides and pesticides and stuff like that. Again, uh, the job chose me, and... Uh, here I was, had five kids, had a house, and I was making $11 an hour. And we both, Saki and I both look back now and think, I don't know how we ever made it. I don't know how we did it. But we did. We paid our tithing and we made it. You know, I've never, I've never been one of those ones that, you know, pay your tithing and you're desperate for money and you got a bill and woo, all of a sudden a check shows up in the mail or all of a sudden some, you know, it's never happened. But... We had a house, five kids, and I made $11 an hour, and we survived because we paid our tithing. So there you go. That, that's what happens. Um, and I've been with Valtech. Well, I, I tell you, I can. there's so many side stories here. Uh, you want to know times when the Lord has been pre very prevalent in my life? Uh, it was when I was married. It's been there... Uh, multiple times. But this is a prime example of when the Lord has been there in my life. I quit Valtech after about a year. I mean, I've quit uh, Zep after about a year because I had a chance to go to Chattanooga back into the kind of work I was doing before, process equipment for refineries. And I thought, you know what? They called me. I didn't call them. They called me and they wanted to interview me. And so I drove up there and I interviewed and, and I, I was very happy at Zep. I loved the job. I loved the people I was working with. And uh, so on the, when I went up there, I had the thing, I said, you know what? If they offer me the job, I'm going to tell them I need a company truck. I need a company gas card because I'm going to have to be driving to Chattanooga every day. You're going to have to buy me another set of tools because I'm not bringing my own tools this time. And uh, I need this much money to be uh, to do this if you want me to do this. Thinking, because like I said, I was happy where I was at. Well, I went up there and they gave me everything I asked for. <laughs> so I thought, well, crud, I can't can't say no now. So I went back to Zep and I said, okay, guys, I'm, I'm leaving. In my exit interview with HR, they asked why you're leaving. And I told them, the only reason I'm leaving is I need more money. I have a family. I love the job, blah, 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 everything else. But I need more money. And they said, well, we hate to see you go. So I went up to Chattanooga and I started working in the process industry again. Um, but I was the outsider in the shop. I was the new guy. 
and uh, it was not the way I remembered it. I hated it. I did not enjoy it. Uh, I was treated as the outsider. I was never welcomed into the fold of the other guys in the shop, and it was miserable. It was truly miserable. Um, one of the lowest points of my life. No, not one of the lowest. It was a low point in my life. But I went to my father in heaven in prayer, and I said, you know, my life is great. I mean, my family's great. My marriage is great. My home life is great. My church life is great. Everything in my life is really, I can't complain right now, Father. Everything's great, except for my job. I need to know what I need to do about this job because I'm miserable, and I need to know what I'm supposed to do. And so I went to work the next day, and you know how the Lord answered my prayer? I got fired. <laughs> and I thought, and you know, when they, when they called me in the room, they said, we're letting you go. It wasn't just me. They let like 10 people go because they, they were cutting back. But they let me go. And I, and I was sitting in the room, and I didn't, I did, I did not feel any, anything negatively. It was like a burden just came up. I was like, wow. All right, then. That's a weird way to answer a prayer, but all right, I'm okay. Because up to that point, I had been going to girls' camp from the day Jesse first went to her very first girls' camp. I went to girls' camp every summer as the priesthood guy. So I'd been going to girls' camp for 12, 14 years. And this summer was the first time I was going to have to miss girls' camp because I was the new guy and I didn't have any vacation. So I was going to have to miss girls' camp. And honestly, when they said, you're fired, we're letting you go, my first thought was, now I get to go to girls' camp. It wasn't, wow, what am I going to do for a job? What am I going to do to take care of my family? My first thought was, hey, I get to go to girls' camp now. And you know what? I came home two weeks later or however long. It wasn't long after that. We were at girls' camp, and we were at Hard Labor Creek Camp State Park at girls' camp. And I loved girls' camp. Uh, to this day, I love girls' camp. Um, I always made friends with the ladies in the kitchen because, boy, they'd always give you the food. So I'm in the kitchen this day at girls' camp and uh, helping them out in the kitchen. And there's a payphone there. Um, for those of you that don't know, a payphone is a phone you put money in that you used to be able to make calls on. <laughs> and uh, the payphone rings. And one of the ladies in the kitchen goes and answers the phone. And she comes back into the kitchen and she goes, Brother Holt? The phone's for you. <laughs> and I'm thinking, what in the world? Who? I mean, how in the world? So anyway, I go and I pick up the phone and I said, hello? I said, hey, is this Robert Holt? And I said, yes. And they said, hey, this is Harry Vernon from Zep. And I said, oh, yeah, hey, how you doing? He goes, I understand you're looking for a job. And I mean, I hadn't even told anybody that I was out of work. But he called me. He tracked me down. I don't. I, to this day, I still don't know how he tracked me down. But he tracked me down, got the number for Hard Labor Creek, got the number for the payphone in the in the commissary, and called it and just, I say just happened to get me, but everything's for a reason. The Lord does everything for a reason. There are no consequences or circumstances. He says, I, I, I hear you're looking for a job. And I said, yes, sir. He goes, we would love to have you back. And and that was unusual for, for Zep because they when they let somebody go or somebody quit, their policy was they they don't rehire. And he said, we'd love to have you back. Um, I would love to have you back 
working for us again. And I said, hey, great. Uh, but I'm at girls camp right now. And the week I get back from girls camp, I have jury duty. He goes, that's all right. Just come see me when you get done with your jury duty. Anyway, I, I got back and I, I had a job. I mean, the Lord, the Lord took care of me. He answered my prayer in a weird way, but I knew the Lord was guiding my life at that time. Taking me where I needed to go, doing what I needed to do, and making sure everything was okay. And he took care of me. And I haven't looked back since. I've been with Zepp now 20, 20, almost 20 years. Next January will be 20 years I've been with Zepp. And still love it. Love the people I work with. Love doing what I'm doing. So, yeah, the Lord has been very actively involved in my life. And I can look back and see instances like that where I know he has been. And he's watched out for me and he's taken care of me. Um, back to the original marriage. Our first child was born while she was in high school. Saki was in high school. And that was Jessie. She's in our ward now. And, uh, and I thought marriage was great having a best friend and think somebody to go do stuff with all the time. And then kids came along and man, I always wanted to be a dad. I always wanted to be a dad. And boy, when they came along, it was great. I mean, just playing with them and, and having fun with them and, and watching them grow. So we had Jesse and then, uh, Saki always, uh, I shouldn't say Saki, we, I don't know who, whose fault it was, nobody's real fault, but we always had trouble getting pregnant. We always usually end up doing like fertility stuff to be able to get pregnant. But after we had Jessie, again, she's going to get mad at me, but a couple of years later, two or th it's our, there's always two or three years between every kid. Then we had Nikki and, uh, Nikki came along, and, and well, her name's Nicole, but I call her Nikki. Used to call her Nick as a kid, mainly because I wanted a boy so bad. <laughs> That's why Jessica is named Jesse Ray, Jessica Ray Ann, so we called her Jesse Ray. And uh, then Peyton came along. About three years later, we had Peyton. And uh, man, I just thought, okay, I got three girls. Whew. It's a lot of estrogen in this house. Three girls and, and my wife, and I'm like, man, am I ever going to get a kid, a son, man? I just I wanted a son so bad. I mean, I love my daughters to death, and they are wonderful. But, you know, everybody, but I don't know about you, but every guy wants that son to you know, pass along the family name. But, I mean, I'll be honest with you. I wanted the son because I wanted what I had with my dad. I wanted to go to a priesthood meeting with my son and I wanted to go do service projects and scout camp and all these things with my son. So I always wanted a son. So about three or four years after Peyton, we had our son and yeah, <laughs> he was, he was almost worse than the three girls put together. He was, he was trouble from day one. <laughs> he, he beat him up. He, headbutt him and he would uh, we had to stop watch we used to watch wrestling a lot <laughs> sorry don't judge me for that but we used to watch wrestling a lot 
and uh, he would headbutt his sisters and power slam his sisters and make them cry. And so we had to stop watch, watching wrestling for a while because he was just, he was kind of a terror. But the funny thing is, we had Dakota, and then we were on a trip to Utah a few months after that. We went on a trip to Utah, and we went up to Yellowstone, and, and we loved to go to Yellowstone. And uh, Saki gets car sick a lot. So she was sick, and so we, okay, well, you're just car sick. You know, we're traveling a lot. You're just car sick. And uh, we got home, and she was still sick, and she went to the doctor, and the doctor said, oh, no, you're pregnant. <laughs> so that's where Cheyenne came from. I would never, ever say she was a mistake, but she was our oops. Because <laughs> we figured we were done after Dakota. We had uh, our son. We had four kids, a nice, good, even number. Uh, okay, we're done. And, and whoops, we're pregnant again. And along came Cheyenne. So she, she's 13 months after Dakota was born, we had Cheyenne. And she, she's been our princess. She's been my princess. She's been all of my kids. I, I don't do good by myself. <laughs> I don't like to be by myself. <laughs> you know, some people say, I just want to be left alone. I, just, I want to go live in a cave and be left alone. I don't like being alone. I don't like going and doing things alone. And so, man, yeah, I, I need to go to the store. All the kids would want to go to the store. Or I'm going to Home Depot. The kids would want to go to And it was great because I had people to go with, people to do things with. You know, if Saki didn't want to go do something, boy, one of the kids was always up to go. So, and I just thought it was great, man. I had five kids to choose from. And most of the time I took most all of them when we'd go do things. Because we just, we love doing things together. Um, did they all get along? No. Did they fight? Yeah. But boy, we had some fun times. We had, we still, we still to this day have fun times. We get together still and talk about certain family trips that we took. That <laughs> We just laugh and think about some of the things we did. And. My, they all get along. They all get along great. They're all married now. Peyton just got married last week. She was my last one. So they're all married. So, wow. I got four grandkids who just took the place of my kids now. Although grandkids are better because I can send them home. <laughs> but... Uh, the kids have just been wonderful. I've loved them to death, and they have been the best thing ever. I, I, to this day, I love them. Um, do they do everything they're supposed to? No. Have they made life choices that I don't agree with? Of course. But I love them, and they're my kids, and I will pray for them daily. Um, and it's nice to know that it's my job to love them, and it's my job to be an example, and it's my job to be there for them but it's not my job for their to save them eternally. That's between them and the Lord. So, cause I worry about that a lot. That did I do everything right? Did I do everything I could, but they're, they're going to be all right. I think I really truly believe they're going to be all right and we're going to be all right. And it's been a great ride. Great ride. Love my wife to death. I still have fun going and doing things with her. And it's fun to have her living this adventure that we're living now in a camper. I wouldn't want to do it with anybody else.
my interests now have have changed a little bit. I mean, I'm still into cars. I love going to car shows. Uh, I can't wait to get our house built so that I can actually get my shop back that has all of our house stuff stored in it so I can start working on my car again. Uh, especially now that we're a little bit financially better off to do it and I don't have kids underneath my feet all the time to do it. So that'll be fun. I still enjoy that. Um, I wouldn't mind getting back into fishing because my new son-in-law, Justin, who married Peyton, likes to fish. So I wouldn't mind getting back into fishing. That would be fun. And other than that, man, we, we like to go to the mountains. We like to go hiking. We like to go hiking to waterfalls and we like to go camping still. And uh, I love college football. Love Georgia. Uh, it, it, almost to the point back in the early days, it was detrimental to our relationship sometimes probably. Uh, because if a game was on, that's all I focused on. And I used to live or die by whether Georgia won or lost. And <laughs> that was not a fun time to be around when they lost. Now they win or lose. Hey, win or lose. I don't, you know, it's a game. I, will I still watch every game? Yes. I love college football. I love college sports. And, uh, so I like watching, watching the college sports. That's a, uh, doing things with Saki. She's into gardening. I'm not, but if we're doing it together, I'll do it. But mainly doing stuff together. Um, but back in 2010, I went to a men's club meeting at Atco Baptist Church down in Cartersville. I worked with a buddy, my buddy at work, he went to church there. And their men's group, which is kind of what we would call our elders quorum, they used to do stuff all the time. They had a professional bass fisherman come in and do a demo. And they do. They used to do stuff like that all the time. And I used to go to all of it. I mean, half the, half the people from the church thought I was a member of their church. <laughs> Maybe that's a bad missionary moment for me, but they thought I was a member of their church because I went to so much of their stuff, but I just liked going to do their stuff. Well, they were going to have a Saturday, uh, a cooking class for barbecue because at the time there was like four or five guys in Bartow County that had professional barbecue teams. And so they thought, okay, we're going to bring everybody in and, and divide all the men into groups and put them with each, each group with a cooker and let the guy kind of show them what it is all about. Now, you know, I'd barbecued and smoked meat my entire life coming from Texas. So I thought, okay, well, this will be fun. And so we went there and they gave us two racks of ribs and a chicken to just do whatever we wanted with. Anyway, as we're sitting there, me and my buddy said, you know what? We could, we could have a team. We could do this. And another one of the guys, two other guys from the church were like, yeah, let's do this. So the four of us got together and we decided, you know what? We're going to try this. We're going to have a, a barbecue cooking team. So we got together and we came up with a name and we entered our first contest. And we showed up to the first contest at uh, Uharley Covered Bridge Park. Pouring rain, six inches of mud. And we had, boy, I could go on forever about this. We had five cookers and we didn't even use three of them. Anyway, Someday I'm going to write a book about my barbecue stuff because we have some very good, funny stories. But anyway, that's how I got into barbecuing. And uh, one thing led to another, and, and here it is 12 years later, and 
I mean, it's it's not just a passion. It's a, uh, we have won in the backyard division, which is like the semi pros, uh, eight grand championships and like six reserve grand championships. And it got to the point where they kicked us out of the backyard division. They said we can't let you cook in the backyard division anymore because we were winning. We were getting our name called at every contest, and you know that's just kind of unusual. And they said, you got to go up to the pros. So we went up to the pros, and it's a whole different ball game. It's like going from high school ball to the professional ball, and it's just a different ball game. We've had some success, but we struggle. But we've always said we will never, we will do it until it's not fun anymore. And it's still fun, and I just love doing it. I love being me and the two other guys that I cook with. some of my best friends and it's just, I mean, I love having my family there. It's just a fun activity. I mean, people might think, Oh God, you know, but staying up all night, watching a cooker, staying up all night, cutting meat and doing, I, you know what? I just, I just love doing it. Uh, and I, I, I've come to realize that I, I, I have a talent. I don't know that I have many talents, <laughs> But I have a talent. I can cook. So it's my job, I think, to share that talent with as many people as I can. So I love to cook. So, And I love to teach people to cook. And I love to show people how to cook. And I just, I just enjoy doing it. I, in the process of, of doing the barbecue, I've, I've become a what they call a master judge. You have to judge... 30 contests and then take a test and then write basically an essay on why you feel you should be good enough to be a master judge and then submit it to the Kansas City Barbecue Society, which is the KCBS. So I've become a master judge. And I, I started judging because when we first started cooking, that first contest we showed up to, I, I brought the long wrong kind of lettuce. You have to have the right... I mean, I brought all this stuff, and the guys cooking next to us, who are still some of our best friends in barbecue to this day, they took us under their wing because they knew we didn't know what we were doing. They said, you know, you can't use that kind of lettuce. I brought red leaf lettuce because I thought, ooh, red leaf lettuce will look so pretty with the meat sitting on the top. Well, red leaf lettuce is illegal. You can use green leaf lettuce, romaine lettuce, no, iceberg lettuce, or parsley and that's all you could use for garnish. We didn't know that. We didn't know there were rules. We just thought, how'd you got to do is show up and cook? Anyway, that team took us under their wing. Mike Girardi, he, to this day, is one of our best friends at barbecue. So anyway, through these rules, we figured out, okay, we're doing things wrong. Let's get the rules. So we got the rules, and we figured out what we were doing. And it was almost two years of cooking. And, I mean, we were cooking 10, 12 contests a year back then before we ever heard our name called at a contest. Because we're like, what? We're doing something wrong. So I went to judging school. It's an eight-hour class to learn how to be a judge. Not because I necessarily wanted to judge, but because I wanted to figure out what are the judges looking for. And, boy, once I did that and realized, because, you know, when you're judging, after you get done judging, you're supposed to talk amongst yourselves of what did you like, what didn't you like, what tasted good, what didn't taste good, what looked good, what didn't look and boy, <clears throat> I was like a spy. <laughs> it 
in there getting all these hints of everything and what to do. And once I did that, that's when we really started taking off. We started getting red calls regularly for our, our different meets. And, uh, but I'll never forget the first, first, our, our goal when we started was never finish last. And even that very first contest, we, we finished next to last, but we didn't finish last. But I'm here to tell you, if you cook long enough, sooner or later, you're going to finish last. And we finished last a couple of times <laughs> and we deserved it. I know, I, you know, I knew it. We deserved it, but it's just, it's been fun. It's, it's, it's time consuming. I know it takes a lot of time away from the family. It's time consuming, but that's probably my biggest hobby right now is cooking competition cooking, uh, but I, I love doing it. Uh, it's, it's provided me with an avenue to meet a lot of people. Uh, I've been on TV. I mean, you'd have to stop it at a certain point and look, and you can see me in the background. So <laughs> I haven't been on TV doing any talking or anything, but I've been on TV. Uh, I've met all the big names in barbecue, and I've got to cook in a couple of the biggest contests in the world in barbecue. And it's just been great. It's, it's been a fun, fun thing to do. Uh, so that's, that's what I do now. I, I cook, I hang out, I work, and I'm waiting for my house to be built. My testimony, I, I, like I said, I grew up in the church. My family goes way back in the church. Um, so I grew up under my mom and dad's testimony, going to church every Sunday. I always had the feeling that, yeah, the church is true. Yeah, yeah, the church is true. Um, I didn't always live the church standards, but I knew the church was true. I never did not believe. I never went through a phase of, did Joseph Smith really do what he said he did? Or did, you know, is a prophet really the prophet? Those questions have never entered my mind. So... I mean, I've always kind of had the testimony, uh, but my mission strengthened my testimony. Certain things that happened on my mission strengthened my testimony. After my mission, seeing the hand of the Lord in my life strengthened my testimony even more. The, the job situation I told you about. Um, when my mom got real sick and she had been in a coma for about two weeks, and my sister had come down from Utah. My brothers were still living in Texas at the time. So we were I was, we were still in Texas. My sister was in Utah, so she came down. So the whole family was there with my dad. We're at our house and, you know, we're praying every night. And we'd go to the hospital and we'd pray. And, you know, please just guide the doctors. And please help her to get better and help her to. And uh, we were sitting at home. And we were kind of having a family council about what was going on. And I don't, I don't know why. I don't know why I said it. Maybe the Lord was telling me to say it. But I said, maybe we're praying. <clears throat> maybe we're praying for the wrong thing. Maybe we need to just pray that the Lord's will will be done. So that's what we did. We prayed that the Lord's will would be done. And we went to the hospital the next day. 
and we were all around the bed and my mom died. But the Lord's will was done. We kept her alive for two weeks. I, I'm convinced we kept her alive for two weeks longer than she needed to be kept alive because we prayed and we prayed and we prayed and the Lord was answering our prayers, but we were praying for the wrong thing. So even though in a tragic, heartbreaking situation like that, it, my testimony was strengthened even more. That we can do things or we can allow things to happen if we just put it in the Lord's hands and trust in the Lord that he knows what's best and that he will take care of everything else. And just that, along with other instances in my life, like with my job and I am 100% in. Do I still do things wrong? Do I still have to have little reminders once in a while? Yes. But I've never doubted that this church was true. I've never doubted that Joseph Smith did the things that he said he did, saw the things that he said he saw. You know, I grew up, I've seen many prophets come and go. And when we'd get a new prophet, I was just automatically, okay, hey, they're the new prophet. You know, no big deal. They're the new prophet. Never question it. But when M. Russell Ballard, or M. Russell Nelson, became the prophet a few years back, I was sitting in that priesthood meeting in the, in the chapel here at Calhoun Building. And when he got up to speak, I just cannot tell you the feeling that came over me like a brick. This is a prophet of God. I always knew the other guys were prophets, but I've never had that testimony like that before. But he got up to speak and it was just like, this is the prophet. He is a true prophet of God. And man, I, you could have, it was like a brick hitting me on top of the head. So it's always been there. And even at my age, it's growing still, and, it, and it's being reaffirmed and, and, and getting stronger every day. Putting my trust in the Lord that whatever happens, especially now that my children are grown and they're making their own decisions, and they might not be decisions that I agree with or I like, I'm trusting in the Lord that he has a plan and that that plan will be great and that we will be fine because we were married in the temple and all my children were born under the covenant. And I know that. I know that beyond a doubt. I know that we are led by a prophet. And I know that the Lord's hand is in our lives. Sometimes when we don't even see it, he is in our lives and he protects us and he watches out for us. The Calhoun Ward. What can I say about the Calhoun Ward? <laughs> I've been through many war changes and many splits and all that. So, you know, when they said, when they came to us at Cassville and they said, hey, we're going we're gonna to move y'all to Calhoun. I was actually kind of excited because my daughter was already here. And uh, 
I thought it, man, this is going to be exciting. I've always liked smaller wards because, you know, whether right or wrong, it's always kind of like us against them mentality. We're, we're so small, but we're going to stick together and it's us against them and we're going to make it. So I loved coming to the Calhoun ward. When we first got here, I thought, okay, this is going to be pretty cool. It's going to be neat. I like this. And, and here it is, however many years later, I still love the Calhoun ward. I got some of my best friends here in this ward. I, I come to church looking forward to seeing so-and-so and seeing so-and-so and talking with them and seeing them. And, and, I, and I look forward to it. And, and it's just, it's a family. Because other than my children, all my family's out west. So this is my family. And it's just great to know. I mean, I love, I love being in this ward. It's, it's just a fun ward to be in. Uh, we have fun. And, and we have some good times. And it's small enough that you know everybody. Would like to see it get bigger? Heck yeah. Because if it gets bigger, we get a bigger building. Then we get a gym and we can really do some fun things there. But I love the Calhoun Ward. When we first came here, it was not, oh, man, oh, I don't know about this. I'm going to have to pray about this. I was fine with it. That's good. I'm all in. I'm all in. We're good. We're where we're supposed to be. The Lord needs us here. This is where we're going to be. If he was to come say, hey, we, we need to put you somewhere else, I'm going to go where he tells me to go, and we'll be fine there too. But I like the Calhoun Ward. There's a lot of good people here. A lot of good friends. A lot of nerdy people kind of like me that like Star Wars and stuff like that. So it's it's a good ward. I love the youth. I, I've had, I've been a primary teacher. I've been a nursery leader. I've been an elder school president. Uh, I've never been in the bishopric. Woo-hoo! Uh, never been an executive secretary, but I've held just about every other calling in the in in the in the church. Worked with young men, been a scout leader, been a gospel doctrine teacher, which was probably, if I was to say, was my funnest class. I loved teaching gospel doctrine. Although my favorite class right now, I love teaching the youth because they're so smart. God, if I was that smart when I was their age, they are so smart. They know the gospel. They know the right answers. They know the stories. But it's fun to teach them. And I I like teaching because it forces me to have to do my research to make sure I know what I'm talking about, which helps me. And I really like this year with the Old Testament because I don't know much about the Old Testament. But boy, it's been an eye-opener. There's so many neat things in the Old Testament. So I love teaching. I love teaching the youth right now. we got some great youth. What would I say to my posterity in a hundred years? Love your family. Cherish your family. Do everything you can to be with your family. And trust in the Lord. Because he has a plan. And trust in his timetable. Things don't happen the way you want them to happen or as fast as you want them to happen. Trust in the Lord. He, He has a timetable for you. There's a reason for everything. Don't worry about these outside influences. Don't worry about all these doctrines of man that come along to try to discredit this great work. It's, it's going to go forward. 
with you or without you. So it's better to be on the bus than throwing rocks at the bus. <laughs> but just cherish your family and understand that the Lord's got a plan for you, no matter what. Well, that brings us to a close for this week's podcast. I truly hope you enjoyed the personal history and stories presented today. And most of all, I hope it has brought you closer to another member of our ward. 